Good morning, everybody. Welcome back into Mining Stock Daily and our Friday morning long form interview to wrap up the week. Uh, I don't know what was crazier the hot CPI inflation print yesterday or the response from the market, specifically the bond market. Uh, so we're going to spend a lot of time with Danielle DiMartino Booth talking about those moves. Uh, she is a former Fed insider and the CEO of Quill Intelligence. So uh, it's an important conversation for you to hear to really understand what's happening in the realm of debt. And then we're going to turn over to George Salamis, CEO of Integra Resources, to talk about the PFS, which was published Wednesday night after market. There's a lot to go into. There's a lot of information, technical information in that report that uh, the market had a lot of questions about. So we were able to chat with George about that. I do want to thank Integra Resources for their sponsorship of the podcast. Also, Rio 2 Western Copper and Gold, and Arizona Sonoran Copper Company. Really appreciate your support. And thank you to you, the listener, for tuning in. Each and every day we put the content out. If you wouldn't mind, please do us a favor and leave a review of the show on the network you use to listen to the podcast. It just really does us a lot of good to get into new investors. Uh, you can also shoot me an email, trevor at clearcreekdigital.com. If you have any questions or follow-ups, really enjoy getting all those emails. All right, everybody. Uh, it's a really important discussion with with Danielle. I, I highly recommend you pay attention closely to it because you can kind of sense the magnitude of what happened yesterday. So we're going to just cut to the chase. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you at the end. Welcome into our first segment of our Friday morning long-form episode here on Mining Stock Daily. Uh, it's a real uh, privilege to welcome in a new guest, somebody that I've uh, heard over the years and a lot of her discussions and and um, conversations about markets and, and the Federal Reserve with people I also know within the mining industry. So I'm not going to go out and ask her about uh, a whole lot about the mining sector because I really want to know more of her thoughts on what's happening here with the Federal Reserve, and it is a very timely discussion to have. Uh, she is uh, the CEO and chief strategist over at Quill Intelligence and a former Federal Reserve insider, Miss Danielle DiMartino Booth. Danielle, thank you so much for taking the time here today. It's quite the day to do this, so very welcome. <laughs> okay, well, you know, so we are recording this uh, Thursday afternoon. Uh, we've got a hot CPI print. Uh, we've got a a bond market. Uh, the yields are surging, and we've got a higher likelihood of a fifty basis point rise by the Federal Reserve sooner rather than later. Uh, you know, as we've progressed, it's been about I don't know six hours since we've got that CPI print. What's been your kind of takeaway the last uh, few hours here? You know, I've never seen anything like this. Um, this. This is just such an extraordinary time in 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 Federal Reserve history to be witness to um, really the, the Fed having to pay for its sins of being so far behind the curve, and to to have a, 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 a effectively to have a, a, a speaker leak the potential for an intermeeting policy decision is just extraordinary. Last time we saw a rate hike, an emergency rate hike, was in 1994. So this, so this is news to me. So you're the second person in the last 10 minutes that I've said this. Can you kind of 
break down this leak or you know give us an idea of what happened? Well, I mean, leak is probably the wrong. Uh, presidents, Federal Reserve District presidents, don't tend to go maverick. They don't tend to say things if they're not sanctioned by the board. Uh, the last time we had something like this happen, the last two instances actually, um, Robert Kaplan when he was still at the, Dallas, at the Dallas Fed, years prior to that, John Williams when he was new at the New York Fed, they had to walk their comments back the next day. Bullard came out so early today with the potential for one full percentage point for rate hikes technically prior to July, meaning the possibility for 50 basis points at a minimum, um, was it, it cannot have not been sanctioned by the board. They have to have known. So it's interesting you said this because I started, uh, I'm in the middle, almost finished with the new book by Christopher Leonard, The Lords of Easy Money. Uh, and your your former boss has mentioned. Yes. Yeah, yes. Your former boss has mentioned it. Yes. It's more about uh, uh, former President Honig at a Kansas City at the time. And I, really, this is one of the ideas I wanted to talk to you about, this idea of anti-dissent within the Federal Reserve over the years. I mean, is that, can, can you expand on this? Is it kind of cringed upon? Yeah, you know, it's, it, it's endemic. It's awful. Uh, and I think that we're at, at, at a juncture where it might be, a, be, be about to change. We have to remember who the cast of characters is right now. Um, you know, Christopher Waller came from the St. Louis Fed, came, he, he, was, he was Jim Bullard's director of research for years. Uh, we haven't seen a dissent on the board since March, uh, excuse me, since September of 2005, when Mark Olson dissented, when Greenspan was chair, uh, when transcripts started to be to be collected in 1996. Uh, Federal Reserve Board governors basically quit dissenting. They 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 put on this veil of of, of decorum. And the, 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 the dissenting then shifted to the district presidents. And that's where we are today. Does this go back? You, you talked about the Fed paying for its sins. Uh, how far back does this go? You know, does it go back to the Greenspan area? Can it go back to Bernanke really pushing various versions of QE when a lot of people were questioning whether we needed the QE? You know, how generational is this? Well... So this is these are all these are all vestiges of of the unintended consequences and the unintended um, events that have been spurred in a post quantitative easing era, because the Fed has become too the Fed has become it, its footprint in the financial markets has become too big, and as a result, when it does things now they're more meaningful. The, the, the threshold, the sensitivity threshold of any little move, any Fed speaker, 25 basis points, anything because rates are so low from the starting point is so much, it, 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 it can move markets to such a greater extent. Mm -hmm. yeah, so Fed Chair Jerome Powell, he, he, from what I have read and studied, he hasn't always been this way. He actually, you know, 10 years ago was very publicly cautious about using the Federal Reserve to push money in the zero interest rate type policy environment. Why the change? Well, look, on Halloween 2018, the debt of General Electric was downgraded by Moody's. Um, 
within 14 days, the high yield bond market went into a deep freeze. Um, and so two weeks after GE was downgraded, high yield issuance ceased. And you had 41 solid days of not a single junk bond being sold in the United States. That was problematic. And the Powell, who was so determined to normalize interest rates, who was so determined to shrink the balance sheet, saw the whites of the eyes of systemic risk in the corporate bond market and knew that he had to back off. And that's the long story short. You got the pivot on January the 4th. So where do you, I mean, I, I'm not asking, you can't obviously speak for Powell, but you know, from what you see, where is his position now? <sighs> One of fright. Um, reactionary. Um, this it, It's not a comfortable position for him to be in, but we have to remember that he's got a tremendous net worth. He's not there for the Fed, for the Fed's pension. He, he want, He's there because he wants to be there, to serve his country, to do something right. Um, so hats off to him in, in that sense, but he is very much a reactionary Fed chair right now. Yeah. Uh, what the status of corporate bonds and leveraged loans? If, if you're in that realm, are you are you sweating pretty hard this week? <laughs> a five standard deviation move in the two year treasury. I mean, this is just insane. Uh, you know, to, to see daily moves like this, I mean, truly is is witnessing history. You know, we knew that once we got past one ninety seven on the ten year. On the other hand that we were going to cruise past 2%, and that's exactly what happened. Um, but the problem here is that the two-year has moved so much more than the 10-year. So now the spread between the two-year and the 10-year Treasury is at 47 basis points to close the day. That's telling you that the Fed can't even raise rates by 50 basis points without forcibly inverting the yield curve, which is toxic. And that's why you you have this potential to have this 25 basis point intra-meeting rate hike to get out in front of what the yield curve is telling you your limitation is. It, we're not, it sounds like we're re recession on the way. I mean, I, it, you kind of got me on my edge of my seat. <laughs> yeah. That, the, the yield curve is saying that um, the piling up of inventories, which has been extremely abrupt in Q3 and Q4 is telling us that the supply chain disruption is going to be in the rear of your mirror. Um, the, the, the fiscal impulse is at its most contractionary in the first quarter of 2022. Um, so there are a lot of moving pieces right now. You saw massive revisions to November and December uh, in, in the jobs report. People came flooding back in. So our labor force participation rate has gone up. It, it, it also accounted for 1.2 million people dying in 2021, according to the census. Um, that, that pulled up the labor force participation rate as well. But this, this idea of this mass scarcity uh, is being allayed, even though inflation is as high as it is and as debilitating as it is for your typical U.S. household. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so quick little anecdotal story. Like two weeks ago, I was dropping my kids off at school. I always have usually Bloomberg radio on the serious yep. in the car <laughs> to my kid's chagrin. Uh, and you were on, you, you had a segment on and, and, and this, this segment is the reason like, okay, I got to find a way to get in contact with Danielle DiMartino Booth because you posed this idea. You mentioned an industrial recession and I really was hoping yep. you could expand on this. And what does this, what does an industrial recession mean? 
what's spurring it? You know, what are you seeing to say, you know, why is it just industrial or is it bigger than that? It's, it's not bigger than it yet because of the very real, I don't believe in the, in the wealth effect, but I believe in the wealth effect for the wealthy. So <laughs> the wealthiest Americans still have a ton of money. The top quintile is, resp- is responsible for more than 40% of consumption. Consumption is 71% of US GDP. So the wheels have not fallen off the services sector and service sector spending yet. However, we are seeing that the, the demand for goods has been not just exhausted, but pulled forward by overly aggressive fiscal spending. And that, that fiscal spending has now gone away. So you saw consumer debt in the United States holistically, including mortgages, go up by more than a trillion dollars in 2021. You saw credit card debt increase by $52 billion in one quarter. We've never seen a quarter like that. So there's every reason to, to, to support the fact that the service economy is not in recession right now, but the industrial economy, you're seeing you know, basically the top 10 industrial states in terms of this gross state product intensity of manufacturing, with Indiana being the highest. I believe Indiana's gross state product is 24% industrial. You're seeing jobless claims in those states in particular go up. That tells you that manufacturing is slowing down. Your manufacturing is your cyclical sector. It always leads the economy, even though it's a very small portion of it. And you ex- would you expect that to transcend into the services sector? It, it depends. It, okay. it, it depends on, on the last time this happened, 2015, 2016, China was willing and able to come to the rescue of the global economy. Right now, Xi Jinping needs to get reelected in November at the 20th People's National Congress. So he's been directing and will continue directing stimulus monies into his domestic economy as opposed to into the global economy. He, China pulled the global economy out of an industrial recession in 2015-2016 and the re- the recovery continued. The expansion continued on until COVID hit. There's there's no certainty that that, that China wants to or will come to the rescue of the next industrial recession. We know that Mexico's in recession right now. We know that Canada's slowing quickly. We know that rail has increased, meaning, again, the supply chain disruption narrative is breaking down. Hmm. And again, if China's not willing and able or doesn't want to come to the rescue of the global economy because Xi Jinping wants his third term, they're not going to come to the rescue of the global economy. They're still the marginal buyer. Do we even have a... A good enough relationship with China right now to depend on something like that to happen again? God, hell no. No, no, absolutely not. Yeah. Um, Indiana. I, 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 I keep on thinking, like, Indiana is the top industrial producing state in the country. That, that threw think, me think off. Think about all the, where are all the RVs made in America? Where's Cummings Engine? Um, it's uh, in the middle of the industrial heartland. It is a manufacturing hub. Uh, I mean, Texas is, you know, one of the largest manufacturing states in terms of dollars that are produced by the Texas manufacturing sector, but it isn't even in the top 10 in terms of its contribution to Texas gross state product Hmm. because Texas has so much more of a diverse economy. Right. right. Indiana's like manufacturing, agriculture, (laughs) not a whole lot of, you know, crazy services going on in Indianapolis these days. Um, yeah. 
And I know that because I actually have a second home there. My children go to school in Indiana, so I, I know the state well. But it is. But when you're driving throughout the state, you see manufacturers, big and small, everywhere. Oh, very interesting. I guess I've never driven through Indiana. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do want to ask you, so this is obviously a, the Mining Stock Daily podcast, so I don't want to ask you specifics about mining, but I do want to ask you kind of how this all fits into America's supply chain and kind of what you're seeing. Um, from where we sit, obviously, the United States is well endowed in in great mineral deposits, but politically, it seems like we make we go through great effort to really be more of a hindrance to get some of that online to supply those resources, to get into the supply chains, to create whatever goods we want in the end, whether it be new electric vehicles or just widgets on our desk. You, you take your pick, you know, from your time, what you saw within the federal reserve and to now uh, at Quill, like what is your stance on the backbone of us politicians on either side to really start thinking as an that's like a second version of an industrial revolution here. Well, um, I, I think we'll know a lot more after the midterms, right? Because the current administration does not appear to be in favor of uh, putting pipes in the ground, making things here. There's a lot of talk about it, but you haven't actually seen legislation that encourages it except at the margins. Right, right. So, but... We all know that politics are won on the margins. Uh, that's absolutely correct. Yeah. But I don't think that there's going to be any winning at the margins in this particular midterm election. I think, I think it's going to be a bloodbath unless something really gives in the economy in a bad way between now and November. Yeah, I was just talking to somebody at Bloomberg uh, just literally 15, 20 minutes ago about how political the Fed's next move is is going to be. Uh, we talked about, you know, it was interesting to see mention out of the White House last night, you know, before the CPI sent telling people expect a hot inflation print. That doesn't happen. <laughs> and so this is obviously a much bigger political move. But on the same hand, you know, they, they, they also said expect a really weak jobs report. So I'm like, <laughs> what are their sources of intelligence? I mean, maybe that's an oxymoron. Uh, Look, the White House knows that this is not just a supply chain disruption issue. The White House knows that, that President Biden signed into law a 25% increase in food assistance. And that has come screaming through in meat inflation being 15%. Uh, when you give 42 million Americans, more than 10% of the population, a 25% increase in their food assistance, you're going to get a lot of inflation in food, which is an essential. We have. We've seen it. You know, when the Fed buys up a third of the mortgage-backed securities market, you're going to get inflation in housing and in rents. You've seen it. You've got it. So, you know, the, the, the policy backfires right now go so far beyond the idea of this being solely a supply chain disruption. And once we get the, once we get the ports unclogged, everything's going to be fine. We're going to sing Kumbaya and inflation's going to go away. So much of the inflation that's been created has been made in the USA. Uh, kind of my last question for Danielle, it's kind of a big holistic question because I know when you were there 15 years ago, I, my question about this bout of inflation, is it a case of decisions that were made in the last three years? Yes. Or my, on top of that, could you say it is decisions made in the last 15 years when Bernanke was out there pushing QE? Look, if, if QE 
can ignite inflation, we would have seen inflation go through the roof in Japan by now. Fact. I'm sorry. QE did not and could not and wanted to get inflation above 2% and could not. It couldn't generate the transmission mechanism into the economy. You can't force banks to lend. You can, you can, you know, the cliches, you can, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. And, but you can give people money. You can directly deposit cash into the hands of people with the greatest propensity to spend a marginal dollar of income. And you know what? They spent every penny. Savings are below where they were pre-COVID, dollar for dollar basis. So every single penny was spent. That's how you ignite inflation. Did the Fed monetize it? Were they complicit? Absolutely. But the Fed could not create inflation on its own. So what does normalcy look like and how do we return to it after this? You know, that's a, I mean, that, that's an existential question you're asking me. Because <laughs> um, I don't know the I, answer. I, right. It, it's so hard to say. I mean, are we going to go through a true bankruptcy cycle where we get rid of the 20% of zombies that, are, that populate corporate America? Uh, you know, are we really going to wash, you know, some of the deadwood out of the system? I, I don't know. These are really difficult decisions because you're talking about, you know, how bad can the recession be? How much damage can it, in, it, can it inflict without something breaking? Um, so it, it's, it, it's hard to say what, what this looks like on the other side. It really, really is difficult to decipher. There's so many moving pieces. We've, we've put so much more debt on the nation's balance sheet that I feel like we're in no man's land right now. Yeah. Uh, I really appreciate your time. I know it's a crazy day to connect with you. So I really am appreciative of the time you did give us. Uh, and I hope we can maybe catch up again later in the year and see how this is all playing out. Sure. No, it's, uh, things are, you know, I'll, I'll buy the popcorn, you buy the beer. This is pretty exciting stuff. <laughs> I'll, I'll bring a lot of beer. <laughs> All right. That's Danielle DiMartino Booth from uh, Quill Intelligence, LLC. And uh, we're going to take a short break. and We'll be right back with our second segment. Good day, everybody. Welcome back into Mining Stock Daily. Trevor Hall here in with Paul Harris for this very important corporate update. Welcoming back in uh, after a little bit of a hiatus here on the podcast, but an important update today, the CEO of Integra Resources, Mr. George Salamis. Uh, George, uh, you put out a very important PFS yesterday. Uh, I think it's just important to say the PFS that you published yesterday is definitely not what the PEA was a while back. Uh, different project, different scope of work here. Uh, there's a lot to bust into in a short amount of time. So let's get started with you and kind of your kind of 
30,000 foot view of what this PFS states for the Delamar project. Sure thing. So yeah, and thanks uh, to you both for meeting this morning. So I've heard, I've been asked um, a fair number of questions this morning. So what's what's the difference between the PA and the PFS? But the, the PFS is quite simply a different scope, uh, in many senses, a larger scope of project relative to the PA that we put out two and a half years ago. Our study that we put out is, we believe, in keeping with the times where people are uh, jittery and nervous regarding capex blowouts, and I think the market was was expecting one here, as we've seen in other development projects in the last six months. Uh, so we managed to keep the the initial capex of this project um, under three hundred million dollars. It's two eighty two is the initial capex number, with cash flows that we'll use from an initial heap leach um, to build a mill. Uh, but the beauty of this project, one of the things that we wanted to hammer home with respect to what this project can do is its tremendous optionality uh, and development flexibility. In the end of the day, that's, in my experience anyway, key to not only longevity of a mining operation, as we've seen in this in this study, 16-year mine life, but really the survival uh, of a, any mining operation. You know, Delamar has all of these elements to it. So basically what we're looking at is for $282 million, uh, it buys you 163,000 ounces of gold equivalent per year over a 16-year time frame. If the world goes pear-shaped in the next two, three years, for whatever reason, from an inflationary point of view, well, you stick with the heap leach, and and that's it. And the heap leach makes a ton of money in the end of the day. Um, so that's that. Those were the basic messages that we were trying to hammer home here. I mean, George, the uh, comparing. I know it's difficult to compare the PFS with the PA because they're they, they're talking about very different. Uh, um, development possibilities but uh, the, the, some of the numbers are, ca are, are very different um the, the capex 282 that's what 32 percent higher than the 213 in the uh, uh, pea average annual production uh, 16 years rather than 10 years 110,000 ounces mm -hmm. a year rather than 124,000 ounces a year uh, the capital efficiency has improved uh, down to 160 per ounce from 171 uh, all in sustaining cost has again had another so quite a bump from 619 to 955. Um, are these right. some of the reasons why you think, uh, you know, the market hasn't necessarily responded positively to, to this document, to this study? Yeah, so, I mean, it's a completely different project. Um, so the, the, the difference in CapEx of 160 to what we quoted as 280, a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, we really scaled up the heap leach initially. So we were looking at 27,000 tons a day of heap leaching. Um, in the PEA for the PFS, we're looking at 35,000 tons a day. So 30% more um, heap leaching essentially is, is what this study is looking at. Uh, one should expect that, you know, with that, with that increase in, in capacity, um, there's going to come an escalation in cost. There's a CapEx specifically, no, no question about that. And then there's just the general inflationary environment that we're in. I mean, we looked at a lot of elements um, along the way in the study and more so at the very end and sort of in the November and December um, uh, periods. And, you know, there was a lot of cost escalation that we were facing in this study, not only from a CapEx, from an OPEX perspective as well, uh, consumables, um, reagents, etc. So, you know, one should expect you know, a bump in, in not only CapEx, but in OPEX, yet we managed to keep the the all-in sustaining costs down uh, to the lowest quartile relative to worldwide producers. So 
that's a win. Um, that's what I understand. But another win uh, for me, George, is the, the, the sustainability aspects of the project seem to have improved as well. Um, using uh, railway technology rather than diesel haul trucks. You talk about the Albion process rather than, you know, POX. Um, a longer mine life presumably would be more attractive to the local communities in terms of jobs. So the sustainability aspects seem to have been uh, you know, considerably improved. And... Uh, Perhaps the market's focusing on some of the hard numbers rather than things of that nature. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the sustainability uh, initiatives that are built into the study, I mean, from the outset, we kind of sat down and, and said, well, what, what new technologies can we look at uh, from a, a mining and processing perspective that are not only more sustainable than conventional methods, but actually make money, actually improve the bottom lines. And so Railveyor is, is one of them, as you pointed out. Railveyor make, makes a lot of sense for this project, specifically when it comes to the haulage of ore from Florida Mountain down to the processing site. It's a downhill haulage, so therefore it, it makes total sense to put those on a system of, of rail cars, uh, tracked rail cars, that actually generate electricity because it is a downhill haul. Um, things like that uh, were, were big improvements to the project. Railveyor also eliminates the need for about five haulage, big haulage trucks in the end of the day. So our carbon footprint and need for diesel and carbon resulting carbon footprint is much lower. Um, and then there's the, the provision of power to site. Instead of going with grid power this time around, we went with um, solar arrays and LNG as a means of, of powering the site. Um, obviously, that comes with a microgrid. So you know, again, that that certainly helps us with respect to reducing our carbon footprint relative to grid power. So things like that were kind of no brainers and they made total economic sense, which is why they were built into the study. George, uh, you know, as well as I do, that um, this industry is filled with a lot of traditionalists and fundamentalists. And when you include new technology into processes, especially in a technical report, people yeah. tend to get a little bit of heebie-jeebies about it so yep. and, and really what i heard through conversations i had last night with other people in the in the sector was the albion process a little concerns about this and i don't want to i don't want to ask you what you know the benefits of it i want to ask you for people who are naive like me what is the albion process in metallurgy and why is it important to the to this um to the economics of this project yeah i mean it's, it's funny it's curious that that question came up because none of this study that we put out this morning or last yesterday was is predicated on Albion at all. This is basically conventional milling and processing techniques um, that don't uh, require the, the implementation of Albion as a system. We, we showed Albion as a potential upside factor to future enhancements and specifically gold uh, in non-oxide or sulfide recoveries. Um, but you know, none, none of the economics of this current study are predicated on the use of Albion. So what is Albion? Albion is essentially, uh, it's not pressure oxidation, so it doesn't involve, you know, a lot of, you know, uh, steel tanks, uh, pressure vessels, etc. It's essentially two things, and I'm, I'm going to really just boil it down and simplify it, but that's the way I look at it. It's the introduction, an introduction of oxygen into, uh, into the mix of processing, and it's ultrafine grinding at the same time. And so those two um, additions to a standard a milling and processing facility are not big deals in the end of the day. And the test work that we released uh, that will figure in, in part of this, uh, this study will show that it looks like Albion could work. Uh, it, the question that I have got, <clears throat> I've been asked is, 
where, you know, what is Albion and where is it implemented? But so there are four or five operations around the world where it's commercially used to enhance um, metal recoveries <coughs> in, in uh, projects in different jurisdictions. So uh, I don't understand, you know, what, what the sensitivity to Albion is specific to the numbers that we just mm -hmm. put out. We're not using Albion in this process, but Albion could be a better way to recover gold and silver specifically just from the sulfide in the future. And, and since you mentioned sensitivity, let's do ask about the base case metals price. You used a base case of $1,700 gold. Yep. Now, people can say that's a little aggressive. Actually, me, I mean, I've been a shareholder of Integra for a long time, and I looked at 1700 gold, and I think maybe I was taken back because that was the first time I've seen 1700 as a base case. Can you talk about using 1700 and kind of the conversations you had internally about that was it aggressive or was it you know or is that just a sign of the times we are we're in as far as the gold market yeah we <clears throat> we use the same uh forward looking backward looking metrics for uh our gold and silver input prices in this study as we did in previous studies so we didn't, there's no change there uh we also looked at consensus gold and silver prices being used by the the research community uh which are essentially close to or on the mark. So we were really comfortable with these gold and silver prices. What always boggles my mind, Trevor, is if you don't like the gold and silver prices being used by an issuer, go to the sensitivity table, pick your gold and silver price and look at the resulting NPV and IRR. You'll see it doesn't change much relative to, mm -hmm. you know, 1650 or 1625. Just pick your price. It's in there. It's in the sensitivity table. So yeah, look, I think I think the gold and silver price that we used is is very defendable, but if you don't like it, take your pick. Have a look at the table. Uh it's nice to see that you have you have uh mineralization that you can call ore now. Mm. You actually have reserves. That's a, that's a that's a big move. Yeah, it's a it's a term that that doesn't roll easily off my my tongue, I got to tell you, after being sort of <laughs> knocked over the head for the better part of the last four years, being told, okay, you can only call this mineralization, you can't call it ore. Now that we have an economic study wrapped around it, we can call it ore. Um, I'll have to get used to that terminology. I think that's another another important piece of, of this study is the 2P reserve aspects. 2P reserves are typically valued higher than M&I and I resources. And so... We hope that that didn't get lost on uh, on our shareholders. Essentially, you know, for the first time, we have a de-risked reserve uh, with economics PFS level economics tied to it. So, yeah, that's a win for us. So, what about the exploration potential here? I, this this again conversation I was having last night with people in the in the sector after this, and I was like, listen, this is you're looking at mineralization from just Delamar and uh, Florida Mountain. But you have a lot of drilling, both in the Florida mountain, but also not mentioned was War Eagle, uh, a lot of upside yep. in black sheep here. Can you, I mean, I know this is kind of blue sky and long-term projections here, but, you know, where does this kind of fit into the overall process of this report? So we have a look at the, the uh, YouTube video that I put out that kind of details the, the two sort of most apparent upside cases for this study. One is Albion, obviously, in the enhanced recoveries. The other one is Florida Mountain and three years worth of high-grade results, which really were not included in this study whatsoever. Um, just to address the Albion piece, first and foremost, if Albion enhances the recoveries 
of gold and silver from Delamar, specifically from Sullivan Gulch, the way we think they can in the order of, you know, 30% plus, 20, 20 to 30% plus, um, then that opens up a, a, a huge zone of uh, extension at Sullivan Gulch. And, and again, take a look at either the verified deck that we that we put up or the YouTube video, which clearly shows a big mass of gold and silver sulfide um, basically going for at least another kilometer beyond the current open pit or proposed open pit in the PFS. <clears throat> if if Albion works the way we think it'll work, it, it opens it, that entire kilometer's worth of 100 meter to 200 meter thick gold and silver sulfide becomes, I believe, fair game for future mine plans. So that's upside case number one. Upside case number two is obviously the high-grade gold and silver from Florida Mountain um, that we've been talking about for the better part of the last three years. None of that was included in the study. If we can bring that high-grade into the realm of a resource and then a reserve, add it to the mix of what we've just produced in the PFS, that could also radically change the production profiles um, for the project. So there's two you know, major upside cases there that are, you know, immediate. The other ones such as War Eagle and Black Sheep obviously are great upsides. They're far less uh, advanced, but again, things like Albium technology could improve um, recoveries on specific areas, for example, other extensions, Glen Silver, Delamar, etc. So, you know, there's a lot of upside here for the project. So, George, um, taking those things into account, what's going to be the work program for Integra for the remainder of this year? You've obviously got a lot of things to, a lot of balls to juggle, a lot of things to work on. What are the priorities? What's the work plan? Yeah, Paul. So, I mean, one of the things that <clears throat> I, questions I got asked over the last six months regarding why are you doing a PFS? Why don't you just drill this project and just keep drilling this project and, and you know, don't bother with, um, don't bother with uh, PFS study? Uh, the quick answer to that is this PFS study really is the opening uh, salvo for for permitting this project. The plan of operations, which really is the first major step towards permitting this project, really kicks off with this PFS. In other words, the, the PFS criteria for development and operation of this project will go into the plan of operations, which is to be submitted next year. And there's there's still some work to do on that on that document, which will get submitted next year. But that's it. We have to start permitting sometime. We just cannot you know sit back and keep drilling this project for the next two or three years. We can obviously make it bigger, but you know there's a time value of money perspective here that we also have to honor with respect to our shareholders. So a lot of permitting to do this year, uh, more exploration drilling to be done on, on areas like Florida Mountain, certainly in the next you know two, three months. Um, and uh, other drilling to be done uh, in areas like Black Sheep, War Eagle, uh, for example. So lots on the go this year. A um, lot of activity planned for this year. Uh, George, uh, in the last 15 minutes, one thing I have not heard from you is something along the lines of an acquisition or putting it, you know, getting into a good place for somebody else to come in and buy it which is nice to not hear because it means that you're moving forward in a position that Integra first, Integra will be, you know, you're, you're making the plans as if you're going to move forward and put this thing in permitting process and also into operations, perhaps in the long run. Yeah, correct, Trevor. Um, I've always believed, and you know, I put it in, in several sort of blog pieces that I've done, a company or an issuer can't simply wave a flag of come and take me over 
um, there, there, there has to be an alternate strategy, which is I can build this project on our own. I can finance and build it on our own. And that's one thing that we were trying to make very clear in this study, $282 million to, to, to raise to, that gets you into 163,000 ounces a year of gold equivalent. That's not a lot of money. That's pretty low capital intensity. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is something that we could finance and we could build ourselves if we're not taken over. But, you know, these are these are two options that always have to be available to an issuer and its shareholders. Yeah. Well, I mean, right right now, your CapEx is more than twice as much as your market cap. So how do you get that market cap up to a position eventually to where you could finance this yourself? Yeah, I mean, there, there obviously this is we're a ways away from looking at this. But I mean, one of the the obvious areas uh, that we could use well, means that we could use to finance this project is the is the silver component. A big change in, in this study relative to the PA was the amount of silver that we produce. I think um, at our peak, we were either the second or the third largest silver producer in the U.S. with this project. About 35% of our cash flow, or sorry, our revenue comes from silver uh, as per what we put out in the study. So that's an obvious one. Let's see what we can do with the silver, maybe, to finance the entire operation. I think that that's infinitely doable. Um, and we'll get there as we de-risk the project, as, as we get closer to the, the time when we have to put a shovel in the ground and de-risk the project. Hopefully, our, our market cap is not where it is today. Hopefully, it's a multiple of that. I think it will be. Let, let me sort of spin that question around a little bit, if I may, please, George. Uh, you know, a year or so ago, you, your stock was, you know, four or five dollars per share. Um, what do you think the market wants to see to enable you to build back up towards those levels? Yeah, well, well, generally speaking, Paul, the the market has it has corrected and adjusted for not only us but other developers or near term developers uh, in the last six months to a year. Again, the shock factor of of other capex blowouts on other projects has has, has prevailed. So we've all been reset here. There's no question about that. I think what the I think what our shareholders want to see is are basically two things: de-risking of the project with advancement of permits and the notion that the blue sky is, is is still there, and not only is the resource base, you know, still there, but it's going to get bigger. And in order to to avoid what I call kind of the valley of death of the Lasan curve, which is when somebody declares themselves <clears throat> marching towards towards permitting, basically it becomes a, a moribund or or dead story. Um, we're going to try our best to not be that company. And the best way to do that is to continue to explore while you're de-risking with the permitting. That's that's the simple answer there. Uh, George, I have one last question because I know you need to get out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just curious. You you literally, you didn't publish one PFS. You basically published two, maybe two and a half PFSs in this. <laughs> so there was, a lot of work, there was a lot of work that went into this. Now, you originally promised this, this report back Q4 of last year, obviously about five, six weeks late. I'm not a big deal on my part. But how much of that... Yep basically doubling, tripling up on the technical work went into being a little bit late on, on what the original uh, delivery. Well, there were, there were a couple of curveballs pitched us at us in the end of the day. Um, one of them was, was power provision to site, the cost of power provision to site. Um, following the, the PEA plan, we were looking at a power line upgrade. And in the end of the day, it just made more economic sense and more uh, a far more sustainable means of generating power for ourselves was to, to produce power on site using solar and LNG. And so that hit us at the very end of the study. 
and we had to retask the engineers to basically put in a provision for a power plant on site as opposed to a power line upgrade. And these things take time, right? These are curveballs that that you know you get pitched happens all the time. You know, two months late on a study <clears throat> that's taken two and a half years, not a big deal in the grand scheme. But, you know, that, that was a, a, a big factor in the retooling of the study in the 11th hour. And, and it ended up paying off far more sustainable means of, of, of uh, producing or generating power on site than what we were looking at in the PA. I better let you get on your way because you got more of the oh. same conversation coming oh, yeah. up. It'll be <laughs> All right. Five or six times on the next uh, two or three hours. Yeah, all right. That's George Salamis, CEO of Integra Resources Trading on the TSX Venture, on the TSX Venture with ITR and the NYSE American with ITRG. Thanks, George. Have a great day, buddy. That's all the best. Thanks, dude. Take care. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.